Mind Crime Liberty Show with me, Swinton Dobson, and him, Tim Patton. Today we discuss private defence, volunteer militias, and immigration. The topic of defence is very popular and commonly discussed in libertarian uh, anarchist circles. Uh, and broadly speaking, there are sort of two different ways that uh, theorists think that, that uh, defense could be provided by the market or, or at least not the state, whether you're in a court or the market or not is another question, uh, which are, are broadly sort of like the, um, the specialist professional army and uh, the volunteer militia. So the specialist sort of army, this is kind of defended by the, the traditional ANCAPs. Uh, Bob Murphy, I think, is the clearest on this, thinking that you're basically going to have uh, insurance companies uh, providing finance to these effective like standing armies um, who are going to have great technology because they're in Ankapistan uh, and they're going to provide great defense from any states or anybody else who wants to invade a particular sort of free area. And so effectively, defense is going to be provided uh, by the same means as you provide pizza. That's essentially the model. Um, the other model, uh, probably most clearly articulated by Roderick Long, um, is uh, that primarily of a volunteer militia. Uh, he rehearses standard arguments against standing armies, which, of course, they're a threat to liberty because, well, if they decide to turn on you, well, then uh, we can't really do very much about it because they've got a lot more power than you do. They're very well organized and, um, well, they'll basically threaten you to, well, basically extort money from you and become a de facto state. So Roderick Long says, well, clearly what you need then is uh, the bulk of your military to be provided by a volunteer militia, uh, men of a certain area who agree to fight if, uh, if need be. Again, the whole of this is kind of uh, conceptualizing in the sense of purely defensive measures. But of course, as Todd Lewis has pointed out, you know, he makes the argument that, you know, private militaries are aggressive and could be expansionist, which, which I suppose is possible. Maybe something we get to. But the, the whole framework here is, is, is one of uh, defense rather than offense. Um, so you've got this, this volunteer militia, but then the question is, well, how are they going to organize themselves? You know, surely libertarians and anarchists are going to recognize, at least as the sort of ANCAPs of some of various forms or market anarchists. You know, you know the market to some extent, they've got division of labor specialization. And so what Roderick Long does is he supplements the volunteer militia with um, a specialized paid force who will maybe have lots of, uh, who'll be specialists, basically uh, mercenaries. Uh, although they might not just be mercenaries as such, they may have some ties. I mean, as to what ties you might want them to have, we could get to. Um, and that'll supplement the main volunteer militia. But the main thing is it's a volunteer militia without conscription, drafts, etc. And so it would be this mostly volunteer militia with some sort of specialized uh, private um um, defense sort of contractors, and that's going to provide the bulk of the defensive uh, forces in the, the free society. Um, so those are broadly the, the two camps. Um, also, I said Roderick Long, um, also um, David Friedman uh, advocates a similar thing to what Roderick Long uh, does. And David Friedman is interesting because 
what you tend to find, though, isn't exclusively the cases. The more sort of traditional ANCAP sins of the Rothbardian and the Hoppian tradition would be supported by the insurance companies sort of megacorps provide defence type situation. And more of the left libertarians, the market anarchists, will go to the volunteer militia one, which, of course, you know, David Freeman is, is kind of interesting in that respect to going more on the volunteer militia uh, side. So those are the two camps. Now, what occurred to me recently was um, immigration is a um, is a relevant factor to this, which is, I don't think is often discussed. I originally thought about this when I was interviewed on the Warden Post, which has now been taken down by Rick Story on basically Swithin the Stan. And um, it did seem in retrospect to think that, well, actually, if you want to defend the free society um, and you're going to be defending the society primarily by volunteer militia, then immigration is going to matter because you don't want people to turn up who have no interest in defending the area and going to free ride on everybody else. Because if that happens to a large enough extent, then the mechanism by which you intend to defend the society will fail. Um, because you need that sort of group cohesion, people willing to fight for the group. Otherwise, the group could get invaded, and so therefore, you know, defence won't work. Now, the contradiction that I came across is that the left libertarians tend to focus on the volunteer militia, but are almost always open border types who are perfectly happy with absolutely anybody of any race, nationality, creed turning up to live in the country, uh, which seems odd or at least unthought through, because how will they think they're going to get this ragtag band of people coming together uh, to defend the, the hypothetical free society? It seems like, well, that's not going to work at all. Uh, I mean, free immigration might work uh, with respect to defense if you have uh, like the megacorps providing it, because well, the, there's no necessary buy-in required of a citizen in the same way, because it's just, you know, just mercenaries, effectively. You know, it's a paid professional army. You just pay them, and they fight. Fine. Um, so, I did think this uh, an interesting contradiction to discuss with the left libertarians, or just generally the volunteer militia types, and also in general how immigration will work in a free society. I mean, uh, Hopper is famous for being, you could argue, to some extent, an immigration restrictionist. Um, but his concept of defense would allow, would, would seem to me to make immigration more viable, whereas the volunteer militia would seem to require great levels of um, group cohesion. Otherwise, it simply wouldn't work. Um, so I think this aspect of uh, the immigration discussion in the broadly sort of libertarian uh, quarters needs to be discussed further. So, Tim, um any any thoughts or comments? Do, 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 do you think it's the, I'm right with respect to volunteer militias requiring, meaning that immigration needs to be quite restricted, or at least you need to be very picky on who is allowed in? Uh, or do you think that I'm being too harsh on sort of the, the left libertarians here? I, I think you're mostly correct. I, and uh, the examples of ragtag militias defeating larger centralized armies like take the Viet Cong, for example, you're basically dealing with one main group uh, of, of people going up against um, the, you know, formerly French and then later Americans. And the same way with like 
examples like in the Philippines and elsewhere, you have the Philippines kicking out the Spanish and so forth. Um, you have these organized groups. They're generally organized around one national uh, study. Cuba would be another example here. Um, so the sort of multicultural band of people generally don't fall apart, don't generally unify too much. So so I would say you're broadly correct. I mean, maybe the American Revolution is somewhat of a difference, but you know, is there really that big of a difference between South Carolinians, um, New Yorkers, and Virginians? No, not not from a 30,000-foot view. Um, um, so, and, and to go full Ben Franklin here, there wouldn't be any Catholics involved either. So so I do think you're, you're correct in the sense that there is a, uh, the mass migration is a kind of problem if you want to have a volunteer militia here. And I mean, I think we sort of discussed this a little bit, and I think is that the Roman Empire had a lot of, of, of you know, the Gauls and, and other groups. And I'm not too big on Roman history, so I don't really want to pontificate too much on, on, on that topic there too. Um, and as far as immigration itself is, I don't know if you ever watched, I, think, I know you did, but the Soho Forum had about two debates on this, and one of the comments made was that mass immigration is very, so I, I think it would be less of it if they're, if you get rid of a centralized state. So maybe for Roderick Long and others, uh, it's not really a problem because as critics of it would point out is that mass immigration only exists because of a centralized state, and the causes of it are oftentimes centralized states. Now you could say, well, we're just trying to create a utopia, and the utopia and everything would be fine. Um... Uh, but uh, like, there wouldn't be an in, in, there wouldn't be an an agency doing it, um, and there might be less structural causes of why it's going there too. Uh, uh, so that would be my quick comments um, back to you. I, I do think you're you're broadly correct um, that uh, maybe maybe there are instances where you have you know they kind of societies organized by around by ideas or societies organized around by uh, a, a common enemy that could unite um, could unite, unite these differing factions. That could be the case, but that requires, that's not just, that requires um, a, a, some sort of agreement over, over at least some amount of things, which may not be possible. So, and it is worth pointing out that like uh, both colonialists as well as, um, as well as, as well as like, classical factory owners, and the Marxists complain about this, will use, and Todd Lewis likes to bring this up too, will use uh, the, the differing factions of, of ethnicities as a ways to divide up uh, their realms. I mean, the British did this, the French did this, the Americans do this. I think the Chinese do this as well in their projects too. They pick one group to put them in charge that the other side doesn't like, or they'll pick a minority to, to do so. So this kind of like dividing people up is not just done um, if you look at other sort of relevant things. So I think you're broadly correct, although I think I could cut out a few caveats. Um, so on that basis, that what I still think, I mean, even when the Roman Empire is interesting, I mean, I, I'm hardly history expert. I mean, that was a professional army and, you know, immigration caused that uh, a problem when you have a centralized state um, sort of paying wages, etc. Um, you know, it just seems to me to be that um, the kind of society that would be able to create uh, the cohesion required to get enough buy-in for people to, to join a volunteer militia um, is, um, is, it's going to be pretty high. 
I mean, I think we did discuss before, or you discussed when Timmy Toddlers on his on his old New Zion um, uh, episodes on his his show, and it seems like for for New Zion to work, you would need to have everybody who is perfectly happy to go to sort of um, uh, local meetings and vote on certain males going to vote on certain certain things that are going to be passed and everyone's going to need to be have like 100% buy-in. It's going to be like effectively congregational church government whereby there's like constant meetings and everyone has to buy. Now, I'm not saying that can't work. It's just that if the free society is going to um, be dependent on a volunteer militia, then um, then the level of buying is going to have to be pretty high. And as you pointed out, you, you, you want to be able to rally around something. I mean, it could be ideological. Um, it could be ethnic, but you're going to need something to rally around. And people won't organize and rally around, oh, I get a better job here. Oh, I mean, they might, but it just seems highly unlikely that people go, oh, I'm going to put my life in line to defend this community because I get paid more here than I do somewhere else. Um, rather, it's going to be a case of, oh, well, can I keep my job and get paid? Well, yeah, okay, just need to pay as a little bit of protection money. Yeah, okay, I will. Um, I mean, that seems to be the most likely scenario. Um, so contrary to what you might think of general sort of open borderness of libertarians. I actually think if you think about the conditions in which it's going to work, you're going to have to be quite picky over who appears. Now, the defender of open borders might say, well, you are right, but um, currently the state is so large that immigration over um, such a wide, uh, uh, controlling immigration sort of wide area is like just such a too high a level to to do it on. It needs to be, um, you know, devolved to like the city level or something like that, or even the what uh, the the borough level within cities or something like that, which ultimately might well be true. Um, but then the question is, well, again, you, you're then going to get the the general um, the general uh, strategic question, which is. Do you go for sort of accelerationism or do you uh, try to, you know, use the ring of power, as it were, to minimize the costs in the short run whilst trying to aim at something better in the long run? Uh, I, I suppose that might be um, the argument of that. But to, John, just as, as a general point, um, which camp would you put yourself more in? Would you put yourself in the sort of uh, Robert Murphy, Bob Murphy sort of, uh, megacorps provide uh, defense for free society type thing or would you think that it'd be more likely that if a free society is possible that um you would um you would need a large volunteer militia to make it work uh i'm not sure i haven't i haven't thought about these two camps uh dividing up very long i would say that there's i'd say the primary pro of the volunteer militia. It's not, you know, the classical case against standing armies, which I think is very boring, very elementary. Uh, I do think the volunteer militia poses problems if indeed it is specialized. And this this goes back to like the archery thing, the example that David Friedman and Todd Lewis have discussed. 
Like you need to sort of train yourself. Um, do people have the incentives to uh, uh, be an actual fighting force here? So, so I mean, that's multiplied, of course, by bringing others. I will point out, though, that and there might be structural forces in the United States that no longer exist, that did exist, the assimilationist force. But Germans who just immigrated off the boat uh, to the United States, um, in general, were quite willing to fight the Germans in World War One, World War II. As, as all sorts of things, spies, translators. Um, so, so there is, there is, and I think, you know, like the, even, even like Indians, the whatever indigenous groups you want to say, they were also useful in the Pacific War too. So there is, there is some precedent of other groups. Um, now you could say, well, the Germans that came here hated Germany. So maybe, maybe they're, they're the ones that, um, uh, same way with Russians that came here, they're the ones that particularly hate the regimes, hate the, the regime they left. So maybe maybe that'd be a case for Roderick Long. Um, there are certain types of immigrant groups. Um, and in the back of my mind, I always, I always think there is an optimistic case. I don't mean, want to sound like some militose loser. I'm well aware there could be uh, uh, some issues here, but I do think there is an optimistic case on, on certain types. Uh, and culture sometimes complains about this, but I, I think, I think generally immigration is positively selected in the sense that it's only um, ambitious uh, type type someone was saying that I was working with somebody and they say all the Nigerians I know are very smart and I quickly responded well that's probably largely selection effects because only the people who come all the or maybe Haitians they said well I was was like well that's probably somewhat selection effects because all other people that stayed behind wouldn't, wouldn't have the ambitious will to you know, move away a five a thousand or five thousand miles and get a visa and all these other jump through all these hoops. So I do think there is a selection effect. So 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 maybe maybe on second hand, Roderick Long is correct. Although I I would say currently today immigration, contrary to what the open borders people think, is a status thing. Um, um, it would look very much different. Um, and it also depends on the scale of the society too. I think scaling problems matter. But as far as that, I would I would put myself into the volunteer militia militia group um, simply out of uh, simply out of I don't I do I do I do find some of the arguments against privatization of defense to be mercenary in nature. Although although I, I could easily be talked in in or out of it. I do think. There are benefits to paying for things like like if you have if you have a problem, do you want to pay a quote unquote expert to fix it, or do you want to try to fix it yourself? I mean, if you can think of it that way, like David Friedman would talk about this with cars, and Bob Murphy would talk about this cars and stuff, or, or whatever refrigerators. It's better to have someone who spends all his time working on refrigerators and plumbers. Now, of course, you might come back. Kevin Carts and others might come back. Well, that's just because there's licensing and other things that that make this artificially restrict the market and uh, uh, you know you can't actually or IP or whatever that artificially restricts the market but I do think if you do something a lot you're better at it even even if even if you get rid of licensing and other things so it, so with respect to defense I do think there's a case to be made for quote-unquote experts and that I think is a problem even even if there is group cohesiveness I do think that is a problem for um, 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 military affairs. And I think this was also a problem even even before advanced weaponry was a problem. In a way, it was actually more of a problem 
Um, because I think learning how to use a phalanx or whatever the exact weapons the Romans used actually might have been more physically difficult than it is to learn to, how to use an AK-47 um, or something like that. Uh, uh, you know, so and this also depends on what type of conflict you're fighting. Uh, you know, I'm going to go back to my, one of my pet examples. I could use, for example, one reason that the uh, the Saudis do it, but also Israel does it. It's one of the reasons that they have like well-developed airlines is that it's very easy for them train fighter pilots. So if you think in Navy, or you think in having an Air Force is a thing, um, just have just have an airline industry. I don't think having a private airline industry is an a priori or an empirical problem for libertarians like it. Um, so if you need to have um, if you need to have uh, fighter pilots and things like that, you could just have a naval a, 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 an airline industry here um, um, that uh, would be activated. I mean again it would be voluntary. But you'd have some basic skills um, to be used um, if necessary. So I do think relevant industry crossover would be useful here. And that's also helped the Americans out. Like one of the reasons there was a paper that said, why did the Americans win the Pacific War? Well, they just had more small engine mechanics than the Japanese did uh, because they knew how to fix. Because if you know how to fix cars, you can also know how to fix uh, P-51 Mustang engines better. Um, so, so you have relevant skills and support and logistics um, so it depends on what type of conflict you have. But as far as to solve the expert problem, I think it would be solved. You have a, a, a diversified uh, economic industries of mechanics. If you're fighting an industrial war, if you're fighting a war of like uh, – if you're fighting like a hand-to-hand like fighting war in like the streets, then then it just seems like it's, it is just a conflict of, of wills and attrition in that sense. So it depends on the conflict. But I, I would actually put myself in – I think I – think, Given enough time, I think a volunteer militia could, with a, with a, with an advanced economic sector, um, could come up to there. So that those would be some of my counterbacks, pushbacks to the to the sense there. So then, I think the specialization point is a very good one. I think that's why the David Friedman and Roderick Long try to mix in the uh, the, the professionals and the um, the volunteer militia. Which, and so the, the the question is, what's the mix going to be? I think. Um, I think mostly it, it's likely to be the volunteer militia with a decent amount of uh, um, professionals. But as you point out, depending exactly what they needed, they need to do. I mean, there is a lot of crossover. I mean, if you're making uh, vehicles or whatever, you know, can you switch over and produce tanks? I, I, th- I think I discussed this actually with, again, I mentioned it before Todd Lewis on a, on private defense. So it was quite a good episode, um, and we discussed various practicalities. Um, practicalities of it. Um, I, I think really, when it, though, when it comes to the volunteer militia, I think the question is, uh, I raised this in the beginning, is what will people typically fight for? And it seems to me that people typically fight for like a people group, their ethnic group, or their sort of town, or their, their area. And they will fight for sort of religious causes. Um, and I suppose I also have their ideological ones as well, which to a large extent, function as religions. Those seem to be the things that people typically fight. And, and by fight, I mean in, in like a war situation. Clearly, people will kill people for money or whatever, but I get, but that's not... Um, to get people boots on the ground, that's not really what motivates people to fight, especially if they're not being paid to do so. Um, and so whilst it's true, their selection effects, and you are right, um, it's true if you look at the immigration uh, numbers and things, the Nigerians are more than the whites in America. Um, well, that's because only the clever Nigerians have turned up. The question is, 
are they of the profile that would fight for America? To which, well, I don't think so, probably. Um, I don't know what it's like, but I imagine the the sen- like second generation of um, upper middle class immigrant blacks is, I, I don't think, a major source of um, the U.S. military intake. Not, not, not to be, not to be annoying, but as Max Blumenthal reports, I think, I think um, in Los Angeles, for example, I believe that they have the highest per capita. Max Blumenthal reports this as a fast fact that like uh, Hispanic Americans have some of the highest uh, Middle Eastern War veteran like uh, uh, rates. Uh, so, so there is some. I mean, there is a sort of sinister narrative here, which is they support immigration just so they have desperate people to join. Uh, the U.S. military, because the military, U.S. military, like all most militaries, have a recruiting problem. Um, so I do think there are, um, the, you know, the military is generally in, in a wealthy society. Military is generally uh, like it's it's only the poor people who who really want to join and live in a sub or go die in a desert. So I will say that that there is there might desperate people might be a, a good recruiting tactic. But then again, how loyal are these in actual conflicts? Which goes back to your first point, which I'm in largely in agreement here. And in a sense, they can pay them. Um, so, you know, if you you know, so I do, I do, I'm not trying, I'm not trying to sort of totally distract, de-subtract from your point, but that's just a quick comment. Not no, 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 that makes entire sense. But I, as, as you later pointed out, um, that would, that's perfectly reasonable in the case of, uh, like, basically mercenaries. And I mean, re- really, I mean, if you, if, if you fight for the US military, you're basically a mercenary, you get paid on a professional soldier, like, you, you, you've been paid to fight basically. And yeah, you're right. Typically it's the working class who, 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 who will join up. And so, you know, basically lots of poor Hispanics turn over and work in California. So, you know, we'll, we'll work for the, the defense department. Um, so the, the question is, if you didn't pay them, would they fight? And so, you know, maybe not. Um, an interesting one you were saying about how, um, you know, if you do things more often, the better you are. Um, I suppose you could always argue that if you really wanted the best military fighting force, you you all you, you constantly need to be in conflict. So you all, you always have battle hardened troops, um, which of course few people really are going to want to defend unless you want to defend empire, which of course you could. Um, so the I think the more and more I think about it, if you if a free society is possible, um, it's not just going to be the case that. Um, it's going to have to have immigration restrictions in some some way. I mean, it might be able to done by um, you know covenants. This is kind of the Hoppian position, really. Suppose I suppose I'm becoming more sympathetic to, or even just like whoever is the de facto leaders of society say, well, look, you can't bring these time people in, and people just follow what they say. I mean, there's various different ways of doing it, but um, you're going to have to be pretty st- stringent on the type types of people, and if to quote unquote that not sending their best, you probably don't want them. Um, so that's um, one aspect. Although, though, I mean, related to this, um, then the question is, well, if you do need this level of group cohesion, the question is, well, would such a society be uh, be desirable? Um, because this is the, the argument that um, right ruminations makes in defense of the state is because you need this sort of bigger entity over these smaller areas to be sort of like this, giving you rational governance, and also, as it were, to liberate the individual from uh, his clan or his religious group to some extent, uh, and so then can preserve freedom of speech. Um, 
oh, there was another guy who basically made this this same point. John Berry or something. There's a guy from the early 20th century who did a book called The History of Free Speech, um, who was very much in favour of, um, who's very much in favour of uh, like the centralised sort of rational state, because this is where freedom flourished rather than these small sort of despotisms uh, in various um, in various different. Uh, uh, places. So um, I suppose the question is, um, oh yes, yeah, so it's John Berry, The History of Freedom of Thought. That's that's the book I was thinking of, and that was uh, originally written in 1913. Um, so I suppose then the question is, if it is the case that um, a free society would require such levels of group cohesion, the question is, would that society be a desirable one? Would would that be a place you'd want to live? Or is it going to be very much dependent on um, the type of society or you know, which group you are a part of, as it were? What do you think? Of? Can you repeat that? Yeah. Um, if if a free society required such level, such group cohesion, so, so much so that you could argue that it, it couldn't really be that individualist because otherwise it couldn't organize. Would this be a desirable place to live? Depends on what you think is desirable, I guess. Uh, uh, there is there is benefits of alienation, I do think, uh, contrary to what uh, Kevin Carson, the Marxists... Uh, actually, the Marxists are actually more interesting on the alienation. They're sort of ambivalent about it uh you know there is there is benefits of being in a more alienated um uh uh setting in that sense so i i mean i this this i guess i think is more dependent on what you think is a, a a desirable uh desirable society here uh i do think there's a benefit of not being occupied uh, um um one of the things that the marxists like the, the hardcore marxists not not the american or british or french ones although a few of them will do is they'll just say that the the uh the working classes in the United States are too fat and lazy and too uh paid off basically to be any remotely revolutionary and they're just basically Joe Biden supporters at best, at, um uh, or whatever um and uh, I think that's basically correct which is one of the reasons why I'm not a Marxist by the way um um so I do think I do think there is a there is it I think I think and Capistan you know to go full Rene Girard would need would have it would have to have a reasonable enemy to begin with um to to, to motivate the militia so i do think that in Kapistan, if it's a small city state or like a, maybe a middle sized state it would have to not have if if it's going to need a militia it's going to need an enemy to uh, rally around um, in that sense so it's not going to be it's not going to be you know a, a an empire um maybe they'll have commercial interests elsewhere Okay, that'll be the case. But if it's just commercial interest, that can be solved with mercenaries. You're not attacking the central uh, metropolitan area here. You're attacking the outlying, uh, maybe an outlying trading post or something like that. Um, so if, so if, it, if certain corporations within Ancapistan develop some sort of trading interest far away, those trading interests are threatened, that would be their problem. It wouldn't be, it would be, you know... It would be Boeing's problem, or it would be, or whatever corporations said there. That that that's not really issue. It's not threatening the quote unquote mainland here. So if it is threatening the mainland, 
Um, I do think there would be some interest in rallying around and defending it, but I would hope it wouldn't get to that situation. Although it could. Although it could. Um, I reckon, I mean, I think, I think, I think in some sense, you know, diplomacy would also have to be uh, useful here uh, uh, as well. So, so would it be a desirable society to live in if it's that it, with that level of uh, uh, a group cohesion that is necessary? Um, um, I think I think there would be if it was actually being attacked. I think the group cohesion could be ramped up, and if it's not being attacked, um, the group cohesion could be. Uh, wound, uh, wound down, so to speak. Um, you, you, I mean, you sort of get this with the, uh, uh, you sort of get this with. There are certain groups that complain that, you know, after you know, in the, in the 50s and the 60s, we were complaining that uh, this generation hasn't fought a war, um, which is one reason why some people wanted Vietnam and the United States. Um, they wanted, they wanted that generation to go through the sort of uh, go go off abroad and. Kill some group um, in defense of the United States because he did it in the, in the 1910s. He did it in the the 40s and now the 60s again. Um, so I don't know. I uh, the 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 tight knit. I mean, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of interesting sub sub uh, alternate like uh, things at play here because the military does have an effect of it's a, being a a progressive force on society in the sense that um, it did. It did arguably assimilate the. Uh, I mean, this is this is this is where this is where this is where the left libertarians have a lot of problems because because like the U.S. military was always like the U.S. military was one of the first institution that was desegregated in the United States and it was done for arguably uh, uh, and again a lot of people would point out it was done for arguably uh, quote unquote bad reasons because they wanted to send them over to Vietnam. Um, <laughs> now again, you could you could go turn around and say that was a uh, you know you could just, but but I'm just. I know American history better than I know, obviously, other history because, I, for one thing, I live here, but also because it's the main power today. Um, um, so I do think if it depends on ANCAP stands position in the world, what enemies it's fighting, and so forth. But as far as a question, if you're really being attacked, I would, I would be the the, the cohesiveness would be um, useful. But I think, I think, I think you might be confusing cause and effect here. If, if there is an enemy, then it would create the community. Um, necessary um, to keep the enemy out. That'd be my that'd be my position here. And you sort of see this with Marxist struggles when they happen, like you get in Cuba, like in Spain, with the nationalists in Spain um, and Cuba, as well as Vietnam. It would create the tight knit communities necessary um, to. Uh, uh, but 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 you're not going to do this on false flags uh, necessarily. That'd be my. That'd be my point. That that would be, or or trading interest. That'd be more mercenary. But that's not really an issue. Um, that would be dissolved by the corporations, uh, uh, mercenaries. Yeah, I think you make a good distinction between the most uh, the uh, commercial fighting and the homeland, and that's exactly the case. I mean, um, this would be sort of by part of Kevin Carson's argument as to why international trade might not be quite as extensive, uh, because they'd have to pay for their own defense. Then again, you know if they're They've got no tax. It might well be cheaper overall, so they could have more. But I mean, it would at least give a relative um, advantage to more local production and uh, interest than there is today. Um, so I think um, you make a good point there, and all, and also that there is more group cohesion in a um, ramping up to wartime and whatever. Although, to the extent that in peace times too much and it becomes inco- uncohesive. Um, then you're probably more likely to be invaded. Everything else being equal, of course. Um, I suppose 
what I would say it really is, it's going to depend on which society and what type you're there uh, it is. But I would say that your traditional sort of left libertarian who tends to be sort of not all, he might be an unfair characterization, but many tend to be sort of like a sort of libertine individualist uh, types. And um, I think that they're unlikely to enjoy living in such a society. Uh, so I think there is a sort of a contradiction between their sort of desired lifestyle and um, and their desired political um, situation, uh, 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 political arrangement. I mean, really, uh, I would say if if you want to li- live the lifestyle that the left libertarian wants to live, you, you well, you basically be Ben Burgess and you're a welfare state capitalist with UBI. I mean, that's really what allows you to kind of do what you want uh, in 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 that sense. Um, otherwise, um, the, there's too many sort of feedback loops which prevent that from happening. And one obvious one here would be uh, sort of um, defence issues. And now I'd just like to thank everyone for listening. If you like this, please share it with your friends and family and subscribe to us on Podbean and on YouTube. The more subscribers we get, the higher we get in the search rankings and the more people can access this material. And if you'd like to contact the show for any reason at all, please contact us at mindcrimelibertyshow at gmail.com. That's mindcrimelibertyshow at gmail.com.